what has been different over the past four years is that Europeans worry this is not a policy difference with the U.S., but that it is much more fundamental. It has to do with how we see the world and our commitment to liberal democracy. So there's been a much deeper questioning of whether, in fact, we are bound by shared interests and common values. And when we think about alliance, alliance rests on those shared interests and common values, but it also rests on trust. Karen Donfried is president of the German Marshall Fund of the United States, a nonprofit organization that was founded nearly five decades ago. Its role is to help keep transatlantic ties alive and well, something that has become increasingly difficult in the years since the arrival of the Trump administration not to mention a revival of nationalist sentiment in parts of Europe. Karen herself also served for a time as former President Barack Obama's chief advisor on Europe. She has over two decades of experience advising on European policy for the U.S. State Department and for the U.S. intelligence community. A fluent German speaker, she has received the Cross of the Order of Merit from the German government for her role in public service and similar honors from Belgium and Italy. For the past year, she has co-chaired a bipartisan panel of more than a dozen top experts and thinkers on both sides of the Atlantic. The group this week issued a series of recommendations for how the U.S. and Europe can get their alliance back on track in the coming year, regardless of who takes the White House in November. I'm Chris Chermack, Monocle's news editor, and I spoke with Karen Donfried for the big interview. So, Karen, you've been involved in European politics and policy in various forms for a long time now. You're also a fluent German speaker. Tell us what excites you about Europe. What has made Europe and European relations such a passion and priority of yours over the years? Well, first, you very diplomatically suggested that I'm old by talking about my long career in this area. But you are absolutely right. I have had a lifelong interest in the relationship to Europe. And it goes back to my family roots, which is my grandparents on my father's side left Germany in the 1930s to seek economic opportunity in New York City. And my mom's background is Swedish. And when I was a little kid, we moved to Germany for four years because my father is a theologian and did his doctoral work in Heidelberg. So from just shortly after I was born till I was four years old, we lived in Heidelberg. And uh, my dad wrote his dissertation and my mom worked for the U.S. Army as a nurse. And I went to German kindergarten. And when we got back to the U.S., I had this, some would say, adorable accent in my English, but my classmates taunted me for the way I would say ring, which was ring. And so I went to speech therapy and vowed never to speak German again, which I very successfully did until I was in high school. And then when I went to college and was interested in political science and international relations, my interest in Germany was renewed because I was going to college during the Cold War and the border through Germany was the front line of the Cold War. And from that point on, I had an academic and then a professional interest in all things Europe. 
It's interesting that you put it in that combination, I have to say. It's almost like you, you showed your childhood self that actually you could have a positive relationship with Germany and its accent. <laughs> well, it turns out that speaking German is a very useful skill to have. And I've been so grateful for that early exposure. And during college, I had the opportunity to go back to Heidelberg and study there for a semester. And then after college, I had a fellowship from the German Academic Exchange Service and did a master's in Munich. And when I finished my education, I went first to work on Capitol Hill as a European analyst for the Congressional Research Service. Then I came to the German Marshall Fund the first time, left here to go into government in the administration of George Bush at the State Department, came back to GMF for a second run, and then left again to go into government in the Obama administration. And now I'm at my third stint here at GMF. And I think one of the great things about the U.S. system is that it does allow you to go in and out of government. And I found that that experience has enriched my work outside of government, but it also has allowed me to share what I've learned at places like GMF when I'm back in government. Well, I want to talk a bit about your time in government, but first, just tell us a little bit more about the German Marshall Fund in the United States. It's an organization that's been around since the 1970s, but how would you describe its goal, especially these days, and the impact that it's had in the United States? How has your access, your influence impacted U.S. policy? Thanks so much for that question, because our name is confusing. We're the German Marshall Fund of the United States. So you start out thinking that we're German, and then you get to of the United States, and there's a question mark about what exactly we do. The name captures the history. In 1972, on the 25th anniversary of the Marshall Plan, of the famous speech that George Marshall gave at Harvard announcing this recovery plan for Europe, on the anniversary of the plan, the then West German government wanted to do something to say thank you to us Americans. And the idea they settled on was creating an American nonprofit organization that would be dedicated to strengthening cooperation with Europe. And GMF does that in two unique ways. One is our geographic footprint. We have the headquarters here in Washington and seven offices across Europe. The other is the type of work we do. And there are three main pillars of our work. We have a think tank piece of GMF. So we have smart people writing about what's happening in the transatlantic relationship, organizing events around that. We secondly have a group of colleagues who are working to strengthen civil society, particularly in the Balkans and in the Black Sea region of Europe. And that part of GMF is primarily making grants to strengthen civil society organizations. And then the third pillar of GMF is our leadership programs. So we have fellowship programs that bring young professional Europeans to the US and send young professional Americans to Europe. And we have close to 4,000 alumni of those fellowship programs. So we have these three distinct methods of work that we use to try to strengthen that relationship between Americans and Europeans. 
and talk a bit about some of the impact you've had more recently. It feels like we're in a moment right now where that relationship needs to be strengthened more than ever, it's fair to say. What kind of work are you doing at the moment to keep those contacts alive? I would agree with you that GMF's mission has never been more important than it is right now. And I say that because for most of GMF's history, we took it for granted that Americans thought a strong relationship with Europe was in the American interest and that Europeans thought a strong relationship with the U.S. was in their interest. And what we've seen over the past four years is a questioning of what we had thought was a certainty. So with President Trump, we have an American president who has not seen the alliance with Europe as something enduring, but has seen that relationship as transactional. And the response of Europeans to that, it's been extremely unnerving for our European allies that there's a U.S. president who might question the importance of an alliance like NATO, who would slap tariffs on aluminum and steel on treaty allies. So this has been a very challenging time in the transatlantic relationship. And I think having an organization like GMF that is continuing to highlight why this relationship matters is important. And to your question about specific examples, so to take one example, one of the programs at GMF called the Alliance for Securing Democracy is looking at how we can build resilience in the American democratic system, in the systems of our European counterparts, to build resilience in our democracies to efforts by foreign governments who are trying to undermine that democratic system. We're well aware of the Russian interference in the U.S. election in 2016. We have seen that interference replicated in many European countries, whether it was the Brexit referendum in the U.K., or the French election. So that's one example. I'm happy to give you others of how we're trying to demonstrate the importance of continued transatlantic cooperation. Well, one of those I definitely wanted to speak about is this panel that you co-chaired on U.S.-European relations. But before we get to that, you spoke there about questioning what we thought was a certainty when it comes to U.S.-European relations. Perhaps that's a good way to talk about your role when you were a chief advisor on Europe to former President Barack Obama and your role in government, because it does feel like this isn't entirely new in the sense that I get the impression that Europe has often worried about its relationship with the U.S., whether it was the Iraq War or many other times in its history. There's always been this fear about whether the U.S. will have Europe's back or not. What has really changed in that sense? What was different back in the Obama or even the Bush administration, particularly with the war in Iraq, that makes you feel like now is different? So I would argue that if we look at the history of transatlantic relations following World War II, there have often been policy differences between American administrations and their U.S. counterparts. You mentioned the Iraq War. That's certainly a classic example. I think what has been different over the past four years is that Europeans worry 
this is not a policy difference with the U.S., but that it is much more fundamental. It has to do with how we see the world and our commitment to liberal democracy. So there's been a much deeper questioning of whether, in fact, we are bound by shared interests and common values. And when we think about alliance, alliance rests on those shared interests and common values, but it also rests on trust. And there's certainly been a sense on the European side that there's been a wrecking ball to the trust dimension of the relationship. And that's been quite concerning. So it feels not only like a difference of policy, but a difference in kind in terms of the quality of transatlantic relations. And you see very different reactions to President Trump when you look across Europe. So, you know, when I traveled to Paris, French often say to me, oh, Karen, you may be a perfectly nice person, but the U.S. has gone bad and we French are doubling down on strategic autonomy. We cannot rely on the United States and we understand we're far away from being able to defend ourselves today, but we are moving out in a new way with much deeper commitment to giving ourselves the tools to act independent of the U.S., then I touched down in Berlin, and the German view is a different one. Many Germans are sympathetic to that French argument about strategic autonomy. What I hear more in Berlin is a view that Germans want to exercise strategic patience. They think what they're seeing in the U.S. is a cyclical change, not a structural change. So this relationship has been so important to them in the post-war period, they are waiting to see what happens in a next U.S. administration. And they don't think there'll be a return to some status quo ante before President Trump, but they do imagine there could be a U.S. president who has a much more traditional view of the transatlantic alliance. And then as a third point of comparison, when I touched down in Warsaw, the Polish view is that there's a U.S. president whom they are embracing because the Poles say we have a big bad neighbor called Russia and we're not convinced the French and the Germans and the British are going to be there to defend us when push comes to shove. So we Poles are doubling down on our relationship with the United States. So it's this policy of strategic embrace. So we also see an American administration that, whether intentional or not, is actually dividing Europe. So I do see this as quite a different moment from past episodes of transatlantic difference. It's very interesting the way you talk about those divisions within Europe, because that does sort of change my next question a little bit. But I wanted to discuss, of course, the November elections and how Europe is watching these. From the way you describe it, they're watching it in very different ways, with very different concerns, perhaps, based on who will come into power. But more broadly as well, I just wanted to ask you, do you feel... Are European leaders looking at this as a transformative election? Do they clearly have somebody they prefer in the outcome? And is that something they're sort of resting hopes on? Or do you feel more of them are sort of in that French way saying, we are going to have to figure out a way to repair U.S.-European relations regardless? 
What I think is so important about the question you just asked is it highlights the fact that the quality of the transatlantic relationship after the November election does not just rest on the outcome here in the United States. Of course, a Donald Trump or a Joe Biden will have very different approaches to our European allies. And that is of critical importance. And European leaders certainly have their views about whom they think will be a more effective counterpart for them in the White House. But the other half of the equation is the European side. And the French, who are saying we're doubling down on strategic autonomy, I think even if a Joe Biden were to win, the French would say we still need to focus on creating European capabilities that allow Europeans to pursue the issues we deem most essential for our own future. We don't want to be dependent on the United States. Whereas I think the German approach will be a different one of let's see how we can work most closely with a new administration on the critical issues from China to climate to a pandemic that face us. And the polls will want to focus on how with a new administration, if it's Joe Biden, to deepen and keep as qualitatively good as they think what they have right now with the Trump administration is. So I do think each of these European countries will bring their own unique situation with them to the table. Now, I would also say to return to the U.S. side of this equation, most of the issues that Trump has put quite prominently and with a very different style than his predecessors on the table with Europe are not new issues. One of the issues that Donald Trump is most vociferous about has to do with European allies who don't spend enough for their defense. He does seem to see the 2% pledge that NATO members will spend 2% of their GDP on defense as something akin to dues. And I would have a different way of explaining that pledge. But let's be honest, that issue of Europeans not spending enough for their own defense is a longstanding irritant in U.S.-European relations. And I am certain that if Joe Biden were to become president, he would continue to make the case that our European allies need to spend more and need to spend differently on defense. So in many ways, Donald Trump is not the cause of transatlantic discord. And of course, many of the views he expresses are held by his supporters. So we shouldn't think that the turbulence in the relationship just goes away if there's a different president in the White House. Speaking of trying to get back to that cooperative reality, you have just co-chaired a panel on the future of U.S.-European relations Talk a little about that, how this came together, and also the timing of it. I find very interesting, of course, actually coming just before the November elections rather than after. So Wolfgang Ischinger and I are both folks who have devoted our professional careers to the relationship between the United States and Europe. And as we were talking, we thought, or we asked ourselves, how can we make a constructive contribution to this relationship? And we thought, whomever wins the U.S. election 
it would be helpful for them to have a robust menu of policy recommendations, of initiatives they could pursue across the most important challenges facing both sides of the Atlantic. So we focused on six key challenges, pandemics, economic recovery, climate, China, technology, and finally security, and said, okay, these are issues that both sides of the Atlantic face and that we believe we will be more effective in meeting if we work together across the Atlantic. So our first order issue was how do we meet these challenges? And then an ancillary benefit of the solutions that we propose would be an improved transatlantic relationship. Because if the U.S. and Europe can work effectively to meet these challenges, then Americans and Europeans will step back and say, huh, okay, this relationship is important. Because we felt that you just can't say, oh, this relationship has delivered for over 70 years and will continue to deliver. No, we need to show concrete achievement. That here's an example of how the U.S. and Europe working together creates a better outcome for average Americans or average Europeans. So that was really the driving force behind this. And Wolfgang and I were really delighted to be joined in this effort by 14 Americans and Europeans from different political backgrounds, sectors, just diversity in all kinds of different ways. And we had really rich conversations where we didn't agree on everything. And the task force report is not a consensus document. We based the report on the conversations we had within the task force, as well as on about 150 interviews that the executive director of the task force, Bruce Stokes, did with folks on both sides of the Atlantic. And from that rich set of reflections, we agreed, Wolfgang, I, Bruce, and our key partner in this, the Bundeskanzler Helmut Schmidt Stiftung, based in Hamburg, Germany, we together agreed on the 36 recommendations that we highlight in the report. You know, you talk there and you also talk in the report a bit about this lack of trust in governments on both sides of the Atlantic and maybe even a lack of trust in the importance of cooperation and also arguably a lack of trust in the power of experts. You could argue these days is something we're facing. Give me your best example from this report, your best example of where cooperation between the U.S. and EU would be most effective and proven. I think there essentially are 36 great examples of that in this report. And just to anyone listening, this report is available online. You're welcome to go to our website, gmfus.org, and read this for yourself. I will pick one example that relates to pandemics, because I think that for most Americans and Europeans right now, that's the first issue that we feel confronted by. And I will say that when the coronavirus pandemic broke out, it was disheartening to see how countries on both sides of the Atlantic reached back and pursued national policies. You know, we talk about our 
Making America Great Again policy, we were very focused on the U.S. in our immediate response, and most European governments were as well. And I think we would have been better served if we had approached the pandemic from day one through a transatlantic perspective. And I say that because if you take the example of supply chains, we all realized how dependent we are on China for basic personal protective equipment. And then we put in place tariffs on PPE because we wanted to make sure we had enough in our own countries. So one of the things that we recommend is that we create a transatlantic stockpile of medical equipment and medicines because we know there are going to be future pandemics. So let's position ourselves in a way that we won't be facing a future pandemic alone, but rather together. And we think we'll be better poised for that immediate reaction to it. So that's just one example. One other country I wanted to ask you a little bit about that you focus on in the report is China. It's a, another focus where perhaps there could, should be more cooperation between the U.S. and Europe. And one thing that struck me of your recommendations was that you suggested there should be a vice presidential transatlantic working group on China. Talk a little bit about that and why vice presidential. So first, let me say that I would make the case that the U.S. and Europe have a more similar view of China today than they did four years ago. And that has a lot to do with China's actions over the past four years, whether that's the treatment of Uyghurs in Xinjiang, whether that's what's happening in Hong Kong, whether that is the Belt and Road Initiative, which saw China moving west rather than Europe simply moving east in terms of its economic and trade interests. So I think the nature of that relationship has changed in important ways and really provides an opportunity for the U.S. and Europe to work much more closely together on their respective relationships with China. And so in that section of the report, one of the recommendations, the one you just highlighted, is that we should be much more focused on having that transatlantic conversation about China policy. And with that recommendation, we are building on a recommendation that was made by the European Union about creating a working group between the EU, High Representative Burrell, and Secretary of State Pompeo. And the Trump administration accepted that proposal. And so there is now existing this working group between the EU and the U.S. We felt that given the span of policy issues at play in our relationships with China, that we needed to move that to the vice presidential level. Because it's not just about security and foreign policy. It is also about economic policy, trade policy, commerce, intelligence, climate. So we needed a whole of government effort to effectively have a transatlantic conversation that would seek to unite much more than we have today our policies toward China. Finally, Karen, thank you very much for joining us on this today. I wanted to ask as a last thing, 
Look forward to 2021 for me. If you could make a prediction about what U.S.-EU relations are going to look like, what would it be? I'll have to give you a three-part answer. So it matters what happens in the U.S. election. If President Trump is reelected, it is clear that he is not a booster of the European Union. We could quote him on many different occasions. I mean, for example, he said the EU is worse than China, only smaller. He sees the EU as a foe on the trade front. So I think the US-EU relationship remains contentious in a second Trump administration. So that's one scenario. The second scenario is if Joe Biden were elected U.S. president, I think you would see an immediate reset on the relationship with the European Union starting on the trade front and moving out from there. And I think a Biden administration would try in the early days to seek areas of cooperation and new initiatives. And then the third part of my answer rests with Europe, because there are two partners in this relationship, and maybe even two if you count the individual European countries. But I think that the transatlantic relationship does not return to a status quo ante in the scenario of Joe Biden winning. There's a lot of water under the bridge over the past four years. There are questions and skepticism on the European side. And I think a Biden administration would also look to its European partners to contribute more to the transatlantic relationship. So I think there will be continued pressure on Europeans to spend more on defense, to cooperate with the U.S. across a whole host of areas where our policies are not necessarily common. So I think this future for the relationship depends, of course, on the outcome of the U.S. election, but it also depends on our European partners and what they see as the future and what they're willing to invest in that relationship going forward. Karen Donfried, thank you very much for joining us. It was absolutely my pleasure. Thanks so much for the invitation, Chris. Many thanks to Karen Donfried. That's it for today's episode. The big interview was edited by Yolene Goffin. I'm Chris Chermak. Thank you very much for listening.